Hey, thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Northwest Bible Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more information or to find out how to get connected, you can visit us online at northwestbible.com or you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And now, let's open our Bibles and prepare our hearts for a word from God. Well, good morning. Welcome to Northwest. Good to have you in church with us this morning. If you're new or visiting, a special welcome to you. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad you're here. Even if it means that you got to sit on a pink chair. Sorry, that's not my fault, okay? Did not choose those chairs, but um, I'm just going to make fun of them right now, okay? Just to kind of loosen things up a little bit. Now, we're glad you're here. Glad you joined us for church. Uh, and you know, here, here's the thing. For about the last six months... Last six months, I actually I should say about the last 21 weeks to be exact because we took about a month off for Christmas, but, but we have been teaching through the book of Exodus, right? The book of Exodus, this, this first great rescue of God. And you know, maybe for some of you, well, maybe for some of you, this is, this is really giving your entire Bible back, right? Well, what do I mean? Well, here's the thing, you've realized that the this reality of Exodus, God delivering a people out of darkness and slavery and hopelessness, bringing them all the way back to himself, providing and protecting and leading and, and dwelling with them, being God to them. Well, shoot, this just so happens to be your story. Like That's happened to you. That's happened to a lot of us. Maybe for others of you, well, maybe for others of you, there, there are certain parts of this greater story, this greater narrative, that, that, are, that are sort of right where you currently find yourself. Like, like I'm, I'm still fundamentally enslaved to a particular sin or identity or master. I, I still have these residual idols enthroned in the heart of my life, busy robbing glory from God himself. Or, you, you know, I'm still needing to sort of appropriate take hold of a more accurate picture of God. And so there's a, there, there's a deep work that God's wanting to do in you. Shoot, shoot, maybe still for others of you, well, maybe for others of you, it, it's made it clear that the, the whole entire scripture actually speaks of Jesus, points to Jesus, right? He, he's the greater Moses who will lead a much greater deliverance. He, he's the greater mediator of a much greater covenant. He's the greater tabernacle who's the very presence of God himself. And, and so just like he did for some of his original followers on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Well, well maybe Jesus has been doing the same thing for you. you you're starting to see those connections, draw those lines. Oh, oh, oh my goodness, he is this much greater deliverer, mediator, tabernacle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like all of that to say that God has been busy speaking in and through his word and especially in and through Exodus this last few months. And here's the thing, sadly, actually maybe not sadly for you, sadly though for some of us, we kind of have to land the plane here, right? bring this series in for a landing. It started with God, 
The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, Exodus chapter three. And here's the thing, that this greater narrative also moves on with God. The glory of the Lord filled up the tabernacle among them, Exodus chapter 40. And so tell you what, as we kind of, as we, as we kind of tread this path together, this road together and, and sort of land this series, bring it in for a landing, why don't you open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 40 with me. Exodus chapter 40, kind of closing the page on Exodus. God has heard the cries of the nation of Israel. He's dramatically rescued them out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, brought them all the way back to Mount Sinai. It's here that he's initiated this covenant with them. I'm gonna be your God, you're gonna be my people. We're gonna, we're gonna actually commune together. And so here's the thing, in order to actually facilitate that, his dwelling among his people in Exodus chapters 25 through 31, well, God tells his people how to build him this tent, this tabernacle, this, this dwelling place. God tells them how to build it in Exodus 25 through 31, and then his people actually end up, actually end up putting it together, gathering the materials for it in Exodus chapters 35 through 39, we saw a little bit of even, even last week of that, right? And now here we are, we finally arrived in Exodus chapter 40. Well, here we are waiting, waiting for this thing to, to finally be raised and for God to come down and fill it. The, the tabernacle, the dwelling place, the tent of the Lord is finally being put up, being raised, and, and now, now we're just waiting for God to come and fill it, right? We, we just need to sort of feel this. And so let me, let me read for you Exodus chapter 40, starting in verse 16. Just, just kind of feel what's happening here, okay? It says, this Moses did according to all the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, well, the tabernacle was erected. Now Moses erected the tabernacle. He, he laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he took the, tes- the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, and he arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the screen for the door of the tabernacle. And then he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. And when they went into the tent of meeting, well, they approached the altar and they washed as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Moses finished the work. 
Like, again, we, we, we need to just try and sort of feel this, okay? Because he, here's the thing. The text says that in the very first month, in the second year, on the very first day of the month, so this is exactly one year from the very moment that Israel walked out of Egypt, on that day, in that moment, well, exactly one year later, this dwelling place for God is finally put up, right? It's finally put up. And just kind of, if you didn't catch it as you read through those verses there, kind of just feel this, okay? Because Moses starts by raising the entire tabernacle itself, the tent of meeting itself, which represented the place where God's presence would rest and reside and be among his people. And a few people start to take notice. And then he moves on to sort of warding off the the innermost chamber, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is, which in and of itself represented the very throne of God encased in gold and fitted with this mercy seat and surrounded by these two mighty cherubim. And the anticipation begins to build. And next he moves to, to just outside of the Holy of Holies, to what's called the holy place and to filling it with all of the necessary furniture therein, the table of showbread and the golden lampstand and the altar of incense and the anticipation only continues, only grows. And finally he sets up the bronze basin and the bronze altar and the entrance to the tabernacle and the the fences in the large courtyard around it, the large courtyard surrounding it. And and now there's this buzz that's just sort of palpable, right? Or at least that's what we sort of imagine. All of that to say that this is sort of an inside out approach where, where Moses starts at the very center and begins to work his way out. And here's the thing, as each section is completed, the suspense is just, it's just sort of mounting, right? Just sort of building. There's this expectation in the air. How come? Because God had clearly said, let these people make me a sanctuary, a tabernacle, Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, that I might dwell in their midst. That I might dwell in their midst and here this thing is almost completed now. And so the question, as we sort of arrive at this last little section of this entire book that that chronicles so much of redemptive history, the the question that we need to be asking ourselves is, okay, what's going to happen in the last four verses of Exodus? What's going to happen in the last four verses of Exodus? And what does that have to tell us about God? We're about to find out. Exodus chapter 40, let's pick it up again in verse 33. We're just sort of slowing down because you can read over these verses so quick and you can kind of miss what's happening. Everything's sort of been building to this, starting in verse 33. So Moses finished the work. Moses finished the work, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled 
the tabernacle. The, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And here, here's the thing, in the original language here, the original Hebrew, well, that word then, when you move from verse 33 to 34, that word then, i.e. time of transition, space in between, moving on to what's next, then, well, here's the thing, then doesn't even really exist in the Hebrew, right? Which means, which means that there's this, this promptness, this swiftness, this immediacy here, a velocity here, that might not even really come across when you read it in the ESV or the NIV or whatever English translation you might be using. In fact, it's more like, so Moses finished the work, the cloud covered the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Like the last curtain is being tied off and and boom, God's right there. He fills the space. His, his presence is palpable. He's, his glory is dwelling. First thing to notice here. First thing to notice is, here is that God is a God who is eager to be among his people. God is a God who is eager to be among his people. A few months ago, I, I came home from kind of a long week at work. And what I like to do Dads, you can take this, you can use this as a free gift to you. What I like to do sometimes is I, I kind of pull into the driveway, put up the garage, and then because there's so much activity in our house, I kind of sneak in, right? And so I have the garage door just cracked a little bit, and, and I hear the conversations inside. And my son is saying to his mother, Mom, when's Daddy going to be home? And she's like, well, he's going to be home soon, but before he gets home, you need to go into your room and pick up your cars, and so he kind of was like, oh, okay, mommy. And so he, sure enough, I'm, I'm looking through the, wind, or the door and it's cracked. And I see my son coming down the hallway and he's sort of oblivious that I'm peeking in and he walks into his room, right? And he starts to pick up his cars. And so what do I do? I kind of creep in. I kind of creep into his room. He's putting the cars away before he even puts the last car away. I say, Mike, ah! And then he's like, Daddy! And I was like, Buddy, you're doing so good. It's so good to see you. I'm so glad to be with you. My point is, that's what God does here, right? That, that's what God does here. It's like they, they barely get this thing up, and he's, boom, he's there. He, he wants to be with them. He wants to dwell with them. He wants to be in and among his people. And here's the thing, we shouldn't be surprised by this, right? We shouldn't be taken back by this. I mean, at nearly every point in this greater story, our greater story, well, well, guess what? It's God who initiates and pursues and rescues and restores and forgives and heals and is, is God to us, for us. I mean, shoot, just, just one example from the greater biblical narrative. This kind of reminds me of John chapter 5. Some, some of you kind of know this story, but Jesus is in Jerusalem, and there's this area in Jerusalem called the 
pool of Bethesda, right? It's where all these crippled, lame, blind, sick people would go and they would sit there and there was this sort of tradition, this this belief that an angel would stir up the waters of this pool and whenever he came down and stirred up the waters, if you could get into the pool, then you would be healed, right? And so Jesus is walking through Jerusalem on his way to the temple. He's not even in the vicinity of Bethesda, but he kind of takes in a detour, detour. He's going there on purpose. You can almost just see him like, check out what I'm about to do. I'm about to go check out what I'm about to do. John, write this, write what I'm about to do here, right? And, and he goes to, to the pool of Bethesda and there's a guy who's, who's laying there who's been crippled, paralyzed for 38 years. And, and he, it's almost like God and, 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 and Jesus are kind of like, okay, there he is, there he is. Okay, go, yeah, get up behind him. Get up, okay, yep, get up behind him. Okay, now, now tap him. You see, you see him? He, he wants to be healed. Okay, now, now have this conversation with him. And, and it's almost like J- Jesus is saying, hey, do you want to be healed? And the guy's response is, yes, but I, I can't get down to the pool. And he's trying to describe to Jesus, hey, I'm lame. And I can't get down to the pool fast enough when the water gets stirred up. And so someone always gets in there before me. And as he's describing, Jesus is like, get up. Woo! Paralysis removed. Crippled for 38 years. Can't even get the words out. I can't get down there. And and God's like, here, I'm I'm healing you. I'm eager to, to heal you, to step into this. And I got really excited there. And some of you are like, I'm, I'm visiting. But all of that to say that all of that to say that God is a God who, who's eager to dwell among his people, to be among his people so that he can, he can rescue and redeem and restore them, absolutely reclaim whatever it is that's been lost. And, and we see it right here as he, as he just sort of slams right down into the tabernacle. Our God is a God who is eager. Not anxious, but but Eager. Which means that if, if you're someone who, who tends to think about God as sort of avoiding you, distancing himself from you, or at least you, you hope he's not watching you too closely, because here's the thing, that, that can be altogether relieving sometimes, and yet other times you, you want to know he's there. You, you want to believe that he's there. Well, well, let me introduce you to the God of the Bible. He's eager. eager to be among his people. The text continues. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And yet Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You, you say, okay, wait a second. So, so God is a God who is willing, who is eager, so, so much so that he just sort of slams right down on the tabernacle, and yet 
as he does so, Moses is still kept on the outside looking in. And here, here's the other thing. If, if Moses can't get in, after encountering the burning bush and confronting the Pharaoh himself and leading through the Red Sea and receiving the tablets of testimony, returning to meet with God on Mount Sinai again and again and again, if Moses can't get in, well, then what about the rest of the people? Shoot, what about you and me? Your resume look like Moses's? God is a God who is eager to be among his people. Second thing to notice here is God is a God who remains holy even though we are not. God is a God who remains holy even though we are not. We, we've talked about this before, right? And numerous times in and throughout Exodus here, that, that even though our God is a God who, who is watching and listening and leaning and, and eager, well, that he, he's also a God who is holy, right? He, he's, he's holy, meaning that he's, he's perfect and he's righteous and he's just and he's pure. He's, he's set apart. So much so, in fact, so much so that, that whatever isn't holy can't exist in his presence without being consumed, without being burned up. So this is just an, another reminder. M- Moses being kept out of God's presence is, is just another reminder. Listen to me now. It's just another reminder that there is this major barrier between God and men. Namely our sin. And you know, maybe we need to be reminded of that. But here, here's the thing, this is also why, well, this is also why we don't read Exodus individually, independently on an island all alone, but we read it as part of this, this much bigger story, this much greater narrative. I mean, again, again, that's the way that the Bible is intended to be read, right? Well, what do I mean? Well, let me ask you, when you flip over to the very next page in your Bible, after you read that, after you read that, I I just finished up with Exodus, and now here's this Leviticus. Well, well, let me ask you, what exactly is is it that you read there? And remember, the the tabernacle has just been finished, the, the presence of God has just come down, and yet every single one of us is locked out from that presence. What exactly do you read? Leviticus chapter one, verse one. Now the Lord called Moses, called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Oh man, it sounds like this is an ongoing story here. Saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. 
And if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, well, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, the one that's locked right now, that he may be accepted, welcomed, brought in to the presence of the Lord, before the Lord. Okay, so, so like we've seen from the very beginning of Exodus, and even before that, well, this is a reference back to this sacrificial structure, system, entrance, path, where the shed blood of the lamb ushers us into the, the very presence of God himself. It, it, it allows us in, it allows us access. And like you, you only had to turn one page to get there, right? To, to find out that you can be accepted. You can be welcomed in. You see, the tabernacle was a place, was created to be a place where sinners could actually live in communion with the holy God. And here's the thing, not not because the blood of bulls and goats, not ultimately because the blood of bulls and goats, no, no, but because of the blood of Christ, right? Like this is what all of this is pointing to. Hebrews chapter nine says it like this. In, in fact, if man, if you want to understand Exodus, read Hebrews. You understand what? Okay, what does all that mean? What's it symbolizing? How's it pointing to Christ? Read the book of Hebrews. I'm just gonna read you a few verses here. The writer's been describing the tabernacle, this earthly place, this holy place, and what had to happen there in order for you to be allowed entrance, access to God's presence. Look at verse six. Now these preparations having thus been made, will the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties? But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood. Not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Now by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. According to this arrangement, this arrangement of of tabernacle, of the physical tabernacle, of of me having to to bring a, a bull or a goat or a lamb, the priest having to take that blood and and by that blood being having access into the Holy of Holies. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings. Regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. And now this next verse, this glorious truth. But but here's the thing, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have, have come, the greater things that have come, 
then through the greater and more perfect tent, that is his body, not made with hands, that is not, with, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, the actual presence of God, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Thus securing an eternal redemption. So the tabernacle symbolized something far greater. It was, it was like a picture of God's dwelling place in heaven, right? Only to, to even get in to God's presence, well, there had to be a blood sacrifice. And even that blood sacrifice, because it was just an animal, well, it had to be offered every single year. But, but Jesus the much greater sacrifice, he actually, through his blood, walks into the actual presence of God in heaven, and because of his shed blood, his work on the cross, he enters in and he, he, he takes us with us, with him, excuse me, perfecting us, making us holy, this eternal redemption that allows us access to a holy God. In other words, because of Christ's offering, Christ's sacrifice, Christ's blood, well, this, this eager but holy God, this eager but holy God, well, well, he, he can now fully welcome us into his glorious presence. We're supposed to see that. We're supposed to celebrate that. We're supposed to let... Let that reality, if our identity is in Christ, we're supposed to say, okay, okay, I've, I've been given, I've, I've been given righteousness that is not my own. I've been given status, position, identity that is not my own, but, it, but it's mine because of the work of Jesus Christ. So, so, God is a God who is eager to be with his people. And God is a God who, who remains holy and enables us to be holy, empowers us to be holy through the blood of Jesus Christ. Even though we are not naturally holy, set apart. There's more. Exodus chapter 40, picking it up in verse 36. So God's eager to be with his people, remains holy, even when we're not holy, though we're not holy. Verse 36, now throughout all their journeys, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, well, the people of Israel would set out. But here, here's the thing. If the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. Did you get that? Let me, let me read that again. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, well, then 
They did not set out until the day that it was taken up. And you know, I wonder if this, this here picture, that statement, the, the implications therein, well, well I wonder if we'll, 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 let it, we'll let it step on our toes for just a minute here, okay? Let the scripture do that. Because here's the thing, I think that there are a whole lot of us for whom the American culture at large and for whom the Christian subculture in part, well, they have created a, a very mild, a very placid, a very unassuming version of the God of the universe who's just sort of content to be included in our lives every so often. Like he, he just wants to be a, a compass, a consultant, an advisor to me, a resource as I fill out this application or step into this interview or navigate this relationship, make this life decision as I, as I better myself. And so high five, God, because now I've taken the next step in my journey, in my journey. Of course, the only problem, well, the only problem is that that God, that God doesn't actually exist. Like that, that's a far cry from the person we actually see standing forth from the pages of scripture. Most notably this page. Let me, let me read this again. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, well, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, that, that means if God did not depart, well, well, they did not set out until the day that it did, that he did. In other words, Israel's di- Israel didn't say, hey, you know what? We really like this campground and, and we really like that fire pit and all of these amenities and we got plenty, plenty more honey-made grams for s'mores here and so we're just gonna go ahead and stay here again tonight, okay? No, 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 when the cloud, when the cloud lifted, they followed. There was a plan, there was a path, there was a purpose, which means, listen to me now, which means that the presence of God isn't there to be your own personal life coach. No, 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 the presence of God is there as your sovereign king, Lord, authority, director which changes everything. God is a God who is eager to be among his people. God is a God who remains holy even though we are not. Last thing to notice here, God is a God who dwells with us as the king of all kings. God is the God who dwells, a God who dwells with us as the king of all kings. You, you, you try to kind of like bring him in and make him like a resource. Oh, this Jesus is just really useful. It's really useful for me to sort of drive my life and my agenda and build my kingdom. Well, he will remove himself from you. God is a God who, who dwells with us as king because he is king and will rule as king. 
will reign in our lives. You say, okay, well, what does that look like? Well, what does that mean exactly? Let's, let's read this in, in its full flow again. Now, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up, whenever God departed from over the tabernacle, well, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, well, they would not set out until the day that it was taken up. For, for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their generations. So, so, so cloud by day, leading, guiding, directing, being king, fire by night, cloud by day, fire by night. And, and here's the thing, like, like we've said, this, this is how... God is, is leading and directing and guiding and providing for them, show, showing his people that he is, he is more, to be, more than eager to be with them, to be among them. Like This is such good news, right? And yet this is usually when we start thinking things like, we, we start saying things like, and I've, I've said this at least once before here in this series, but, but this is where we start saying things like, well, well that would be a whole lot easier. That, that would be a whole lot easier. Like if all I had to do is, well, there goes the cloud, honey. And so we're supposed to live in this neighborhood. Or, oh, no, no, hey, sorry, guys, there goes the cloud. I guess I'm supposed to talk to that guy with the neck tattoos. I guess he's going to re- receive Jesus today. Oh, 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 wait, wait, wait. No, no, sir, I, hey, I see the fire over here, boss. I see the fire over here. So I, I don't think that we should do that deal. Like if that's all I had to do in surrendering to God and completely following God, well, that would, that would just be a whole lot easier, right? We think. We say that. We feel that. Maybe I'm projecting that feeling on you. I don't see anybody nodding their heads. And yet here's the thing, we we have something so much better. We have something so much better. So let me just kind of break it down for us here, okay? In Jesus' earthly life in public ministry, about halfway through, especially in the the Gospel of John, well, he starts telling his disciples, hey, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die there. and be arrested and crucified on a Roman cross. And, and, then, I'm, and then I'm out. I'll be raised from the dead, and then I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. And they're like, no, 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 no. This starts to cause all this consternation in them, right? That wasn't their plan. That's not how they were reading the Old Testament. They thought that he was going to come with a sword, He's going to overthrow all of these other kingdoms. And so now he's saying, no, no, no. This this sort of echo of the kingdom, what's what's going to happen here is I'm going to come. I'm I'm going to die. I'm going to, through my blood, I'm going to allow entrance for anyone who 
calls my name, anyone who surrenders themselves to me because of the blood that I shed, I'm gonna allow them entrance into the kingdom of God before the king himself. And, and so in order to do that, I'm going to the cross and then, and then I'm gonna rise from the dead and then, and then I'm gone. And they, they start to, there was, there's like all this anxiety and fear, right? They start to try to talk him out of this. And in John chapter 14, well, Jesus makes this, this statement. L- listen to what he says. Look at the language, especially here. He says, hey, hey don't, don't worry. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, capital H, that must be a proper name. That must mean that's a person. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you. Just like my father did in the tabernacle, just like I have in this body, well, he dwells with you and will be in you. And guess what? Those guys are like, goes right over their head, right? I'm gonna gonna send this other helper. I'm gonna ask, and and the father's gonna send this other helper. He's gonna be with you, and and here's why. Because you know him, because he dwells with you and will be in you. It just goes right over their heads. But then he, he actually goes to the cross. He's crucified, buried in a grave. Three days later, rises again, starts to appear to these same disciples. They're geeked out. They're like, he's resurrected, authority, power, let's go. And he's like, no, 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 wait. Remember, remember what I talked about sent, asking the, the father for this helper who's gonna come? Like, you don't have that power yet. You don't have him yet. In, in Acts chapter one, just a little bit later in the narrative, he's, he's about to ascend back to the father And he says to them, he says what? He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He's gonna come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. And so they're like, okay, he he promised back then. Now we remember that and he's risen and he's gone back to heaven. And now he's, he's saying again, hey, that's when the power comes. The presence of God, the Holy Spirit, that's when he comes and so Just a a few chapters later in Acts, he comes and he starts to do this incredible work and these guys' hearts and lives are completely set on fire. They're reoriented toward the kingdom and they start scattering as the church and proclaiming this gospel and people start to be freed from all of these things, all of these idols. The the kingdom is advancing. Just, Just one more here. Even a persecutor of the church breathing threats and murder against the church is completely converted and then says in a letter that he writes a first century church in Corinth says these words do you not know that you are God's temple God's tabernacle and that God's spirit dwells in you Do you not know that you are God's tabernacle and that God's spirit dwells in you? 
All of that to say that now this, this cloud, this fire, this presence, the presence of the living God himself, well, now you have his presence right inside of you if you are in Christ. I don't know, I expected an amen after that. But let's just sort of review here, okay? Because we tend to think, we tend to say, and I projected on that, that on you a little bit, like, oh, that would be so much easier. That would be so much better. But let's just sort of review here, okay? Let's sort of contrast here because either you have this giant tabernacle, physical tabernacle that you actually have to take down and carry, and you've got this very messy sacrificial system where you, you've got to shed blood to even enter in. And like even, even then it's only a select few, the, the priests, the high priests who can enter in. And you've got to bring grain offerings and drink offerings and wave offerings and unblemished lambs year after year after year, hoping that they can somehow ease your troubled conscience throughout the months to come, etc., etc., etc. Or instead, you've got the presence of the living God inside of you, eager to be with you and holy in spite of you and faithful to cleanse you and ready to empower you, who leads you out to be a a witness to all tribes and tongues and peoples and nations for the glory of Jesus Christ himself. Like, I think I'm going to take door number two, Johnny. God is eager to be among his people. He remains holy even though we are not. He he dwells with us as the king of all kings. So, So what does that look like on the ground? What is what I just described? He's eager. If you're in Christ, he he dwells with you. Makes you holy. Starts using you for his purposes, his his plans. How does this translate to on the ground? Let, Let me just make a few suggestions. How does that change the vision for your life? Knowing that, knowing God's eager. He he remains holy. But but here's the thing, he he, he dwells in you through the person of the Holy Spirit. There's your cloud, there's your fire, leading you, guiding you, encouraging you, teaching you, prompting you. How does that change the vision for your life? Does it change the vision for your life at all? Or do you kind of buy into an alternative vision, visions that just sort of blindly walk through life? Okay, I want influence and affluence and comfort. And let me ask you, how does that vision square with this one? Because it seems like this one would go, okay, man, have the presence of God inside me. I'm not who I used to be. I can, I can 
be seen as a son of God, a daughter of God, a child of the king, and he's, he's given me purpose. And so I got a job, yeah, but I got more purpose than that. And I, I got a house and a car, I live in a neighborhood, but I got, man, I got more purpose than that. And I got these, these relationships, these social engagements that I step in and out of every single day, but I got more purpose than that. There's greater purpose than that. Does it change the vision of our lives at all? To know that God's eager, that he dwells, that by his spirit he sends us out to be a witness and proclaim his gospel. How, how does it change the vision for your marriage? Guys, just stay with me here. How does it change the vision for your marriage? Like, do you just kind of live in a house with a woman, and, and maybe she cooks, maybe you cook, and you just kind of do life together, and so it's kind of this, and I love you, and there's some good sort of social fabric woven into that? Or do you say, no, no man, like I have the spirit of God living in me and he's given me this person, this bride. And so just like Jesus kind of lays down his life for the bride who is the church, well, well, I need to kind of move toward her by the prompting of the Holy Spirit and nurture growth in her and wash her with the water of the word and help her to thrive and become who God's created her to be. Because is that your vision for marriage? What about your vision for community? with other believers. Because here's the thing, we all kinda, we all kinda get steered away from this vision. And community sometimes is the means by which God steers us back. And we start to talk and think and read and strategize about like, okay man, how, how do I go into my work setting? Prompted by the Holy Spirit, he's, he's nudging me, there's the cloud. And, and I need to talk to this dude. I need to have some conversations with this woman. She's got fake eyelashes, but that's cool. Like I, you know, every girl's got fake eyelashes now. And so let's just saddle up to her and have this cup of coffee because she's hurting. And so how do I step into that and show her this hope that I have, this kingdom that I'm living in? This com community, like do you give yourself to community in a way that, and that inspires you toward that vision. What about encouragement? I'm, I'm just throwing stuff out, man. Okay, last one, in, encouragement. And I know some people are going to email me this. Well, that's not always the, but, but just go with me on this, okay? The other day, beginning of the week, my wife had had a really hard week our 16-year-old niece sends a text to my wife. She's exhausted. She's raising four kids. She's got kind of a doofus of a husband, and she's just kind of buried under all of this. 
She's putting on her makeup. The phone goes off. It's my 16-year-old niece. It says, hey, Aunt Ashley. Man, I was just, I was just doing my quiet time this morning before the Lord and felt prompted to pray for you, to send you this text, to just tell you that I so look up to you. I love you. I miss you. Thanks for being a role model to me. Are you letting the Holy Spirit prompt you in those sort of ways? Because we all like, man, okay, that popped into my head. Well, maybe I was just kind of thinking about this person or man, my subconscious was overloaded and I dreamt about all these people from high school or whatever. And so maybe that's not, and, and you might be right, but maybe it is the Spirit prompting you to give life to someone. My 16-year-old niece gave life to my wife. How does that change your vision for how you encourage people that are already part of this kingdom or that might not be part of this kingdom? God is a God who is eager to be among his people. God who remains holy even though we are not. God is a God who, who dwells with us as the king of all kings. May this vision that he gives us for our lives, for our very being. May it completely reorient our eyes and our hearts and our minds and our our feet, our hands to be about his work, both in the church and in the world outside of it. Let me pray for us. And God, this morning as we reflect on these things, by your Holy Spirit, may you convict us of ways that that isn't our vision for life and then help us to repent of those and turn back to this path that you've laid out for us. And may we be compelled all over again by this God our God, who pursued us and found us and delivered us and came and dwelt with us in order that he might scatter us to proclaim the excellencies of his name. It's in Jesus' name and for his glory we pray.